please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 4, 31 through 44. Please read with me the verses in bold. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kind of? All right, there we go. Power. You may have heard this illustration from me before, but I thought it would be appropriate here, particularly as Pastor Brad shared a top 10 list last week. I just think he was trying to get away with a 10-point sermon. Well, you may have heard of the property laws of a toddler. Whether you have children or not, we all no kids who have particular laws when it comes to their toys, the way they view their stuff. Ten laws. If, it's, uh, if I like it, guess what? It's mine. <laughs> if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, <laughs> if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. <laughs> if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. 
this is uh, one of the things that I used to do when I was little. If it looks just like mine, <laughs> yes, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. But if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> We are in a new sermon series, and I say new very loosely in the Gospel of Luke that we're calling That You May Know. And I say new even though we have been in it for almost two months, if you can believe that. But relative to how long we'll be in this wonderful book, it is fairly new. Now, if you're just joining us up to this point in the book of Luke, Luke has done no ministry. I'm sorry, Jesus has done no ministry. We get a narrative of the gospel or uh, of the prequel to uh, his ministry, so to speak. Uh, prequels seem to be the popular thing these days in movies. To make a movie of a character's background or of a character's upbringing or a character's childhood. Well, we get a glimpse into the childhood of Jesus, the birth story of Jesus. We meet his parents. We meet his aunt and his uncle and his cousin John. And we see in this gospel a longer section on the, uh, in the childhood and the adolescence of Jesus than any other gospel writer. We read a 77-name genealogy, twice as long as the one found in the book of Matthew. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 years days to be tempted, just like we talked about the first man, the first Adam. But the different Jesus succeeds. Last week, Pastor Brad preached about the sermon that Jesus gave in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which brings us to this point in Luke chapter 4. This is the moment that we have all been waiting for. This is the moment that has been anticipated by the announcements by the birth of Jesus and by the prophets and by the temptation, they have been all leading up to this point and pointing our attention to this moment, to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is both a transition in the text as well as the beginning. Last week, Jesus was in Nazareth. This morning in our section, Jesus is in Capernaum, a city by the sea, a prosperous fishing town. Jesus finds himself here, as you may remember from last week, that uh, Jesus was driven from Nazareth by the religious leaders. Capernaum was a city of the, on the northwest side of the shore of Galilee. And if you look at the, uh, the slide, you can see where Capernaum is, about 20 miles northeast of Nazareth. Significant because uh, Capernaum is the second home of Jesus, the adopted hometown of of Jesus, where Jesus will spend a significant portion of his time. It was, it was in Capernaum that he chose his first disciples. You may remember men like Peter and, and Andrew and Matthew who were all there in Capernaum when he called them to follow him. This would also be the place where many miracles would be done by Jesus. In fact, this is one of five accounts that Luke provides of Christ healing on the Sabbath day. It's significant. It's a significant day of rest and worship 
but it includes these great acts of mercy and compassion, which was radically different from what the religious leaders at that time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, would call a religious norm. Well, last week, Jesus read from Isaiah. In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading from Isaiah. He says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the, uh, to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Pastor Brad talked about the year of Jubilee last week. And today he's, he's doing exactly that. Our text tells us in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, right, from Nazareth. And again, the, 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 the map or the way we look at the map is very different than the way perhaps Luke is looking at this. He says he went down to Capernaum. And again, if you look at the map, it's actually up. Right? I do that all the time. Like I, I'm from Southern California. That was a sad day yesterday, and I won't go into that much further. But I'm from Southern California, and a lot of times I'll say, like, I went up to Southern California, right? Or I went up to my hometown, or I went up to Orange County. Uh, you know, first of all, I have my geography mixed up. You know, I don't know where I am sometimes. But again, here, Luke is not making that same mistake. There's no going down geographically there is no going down to Capernaum other than the fact that again Nazareth sits about 1200 feet above sea level and Capernaum only about 20 miles away there's a steep dive to Capernaum that's around 700 feet below sea level so you can understand why Luke is describing for us that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Again, this place where Jesus would do the bulk of his ministry from uh, chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50. There is this, this, uh, this area of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, where he does most of his work. Right? Spends about a year and a half, uh, a good portion of his time doing ministry in this place called Capernaum and Galilee. And it was on the Sabbath day, right? If we're looking at details of the text, it tells us that the Sabbath day was where Jesus was found teaching in the synagogues. He was last week at Risen Hayward. That's where I was last week. I'm not, I'm not equating myself to Jesus, but he was last week at Nazareth. And, and again, this week he's in Capernaum. And again, we'll find himself at different synagogues in, in Israel. And this is something that Brad mentioned last week. He went to church. Jesus went to church. Jesus, the Son of God, went to church. And we see on this Sabbath day, Jesus is doing something similar. He's found teaching in the synagogue. And what was the response of the people? It says it was for, for it was quite the opposite reaction that we, than we find in the, in the reception at Nazareth, where he was driven out by religious leaders. It says in Capernaum that they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. The reaction of the hearers isn't, though, what Luke wants to get across. It's not the main point of this verse. Yes, it's pretty profound. Yes, he teaches, and again, it's in contrast to the teaching at Nazareth, 
But that's not the point. In verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching. But it's the second part of this where he says, for his word possessed authority. When you read through this section, and we all did together in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, this is the point. Not that they were astonished, because they were. There was some astonished and shocked and profoundly affected folks who heard the power of the message. There's significance and importance in that. But again, the whole point of Luke, when we when we read it, this uh, section in verse 32 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And that's the key word, authority. This will be a theme throughout this next section and throughout the entirety of the book. He possesses authority. Why give us such a long introduction? Why a genealogy? Why a story about a confrontation with the devil in the wilderness? It's to drive home this point, that Jesus possesses authority. Luke chapter 1, chapter 2, we see the birth of Jesus, and again, we see his credentials, right? We see him coming from a, a family line, a royal line of David, and, and we know that this genealogy gives us this this genealogy that starts with Jesus goes through King David, that royal line, and then to Abraham, the blessing that was given to all of Israel, and then all the way to Adam. And again, Luke says, the son of God. He's given us his credentials. He's telling us that he belongs. He's telling us that he's part of the royal line of, of David. And again, I made this point a couple of weeks ago, but I want to stress that, again, if it's not the royal line from the line of Joseph, Luke seems to be saying that this is the royal line from Mary as well. And so not just Joseph, who was supposedly his father, who is of the royal line of David, but so is Mary. Just in case you think that he's an illegitimate, illegitimate king, he has credentials because Mary, too, is in the same line as that of David. All these credentials, the genealogy, the confrontation in the wilderness. As the, as the devil tempts Jesus in, in his 40 days out there, in his 40-day fast, Satan tempts Jesus with all sorts of, of temptations to kneel before him, to give up this and to give up that. And, and what does Jesus do? He goes back to the Word. He goes back to Scripture. He quotes Scripture and says that man shall not live. Again, here's the authority. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Convinced so far? It's about authority. It's about the kingdom of God. One of the motifs in the Gospel of Luke is this theme of the kingdom of God. Up to this point in our passage, yes, Luke has made it clear that not only is Jesus the perfect son of man, but he's also the perfect son of God. 
He is the promised Messiah. The one who had prophesied or the prophets who had foretold of the coming of Jesus, that a king would come, a Messiah would come and rescue them, would save them from their sins. This promised Messiah is Jesus, the messianic king who would bring God's blessing just as he promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 22, that he is from the line of David, that he would receive the reign of God on earth just as he promised to David, that there would be no end to the throne of his line. In Luke chapter 1, the angel says to Mary, again, if you're not convinced that it's about the kingdom, let me just share some of these things with you. The angel says to Mary in verse 32, he will be great. The angel is talking about Jesus, the son born to Mary. And he will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign. He will reign over the house of Jacob. I mean, why the genealogy? It's to bring us to this point about the authority of Jesus, about the the king who has come to take his place on the throne. And it finishes off in verse 33, and of his kingdom. You know, if you think that Matthew is the only one, the gospel writer Matthew is the only one that talks about the kingdom of God, well, here's Luke from the very onset of his book. In the first chapter of his book, in his gospel, he says, the throne of his father David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How about in verse 68, when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, has a conversation with the angel. And again, this is Zechariah prophesying in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. It's a repetition of, of David, who was the greatest king of Israel. He was not the first he is the greatest king of Israel. And again, God promises to David that again, there will be offspring from him who will reign on the throne forever. You know, we see in Israel's history, when you go back and flip through the pages of the Old Testament, right? You read through the history of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. There were all sorts of, of uh, evil kings. And again, we know that uh, when we get to the book of Luke, here's an end to that, that line. There'd be no more after him. That David would be, he would give uh, birth to the, uh, a great, 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 great grandson who would take on the throne of Israel. Again, the point that Luke seems to make is that it's about the kingdom. 
Again, at the end of our section this morning, again, I'm going to flip to the very end of that, uh, of that section that we just read in verse 43. But he said to them, again, this is Jesus' own words. He says, I must preach the good news. And what does he say? The good news of the kingdom. Again, I don't think the author wants us to miss this point that Jesus possesses authority as king, as the rightful heir to the throne, as the offspring of David, that again, this, this king, this new king, this king who will sit on the throne in eternity is Jesus himself. And he, Jesus says that he, that he is the one who preaches the good news of the kingdom. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. And then verse 44 ends, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What is Luke's point? This passage is a passage about authority. God's authority. It's a passage about God's sovereignty. It's a passage about Jesus' power. It's a passage about the kingdom of God. It's, a, it's about Jesus as the king of this kingdom. His credentials give proof of his royal status. His genealogy, both from Matthew's standpoint as well as from Luke's, is that he is from the line of David and has a rightful place to the throne. Jesus possesses true authority just like a true king does. And if Jesus is king of this kingdom, then we can also say, Everything belongs to him. He is not a selfish toddler. But he is the Lord of all creation, and he can truly look at everything and say, it's mine. And do you know what's so amazing about Christ's ownership of all things? Not only does it all belong to him, but quite unlike the property laws of the toddler, Jesus even claims ownership of broken things. He claims ownership of broken things. Who does that? In fact, he reveals this in the healings. He revels in claiming ownership of broken things. Jesus looks at the entire universe and says, it's mine. Even those people, even those situations, even those lives, and even those relationships that are broken, they're all mine. I want them all so that I can take them and fix them and bring glory to my name through them. And this is what we learn in Luke chapter 4. One of the main lessons of Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. And we see this, uh, this truth throughout the entire Bible, but especially in these three chapters in Luke. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. And Jesus Christ owns all things. He has authority over everything. And what we see in our section this morning in Luke chapter 4 is that Jesus has all kinds of authority. Jesus exercises authority uh, in his teaching. He exercises authority in his, uh, as he exercises demons. He has authority over disease, over sickness. 
And we learn later in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we learn that Jesus has authority over nature. He has authority over the law. He has authority to forgive sins. He has, I mean, you get it. And that's the point. These are not all different stories that Luke said, you know what, hey, this sounds like a great story. I'll put that in the, I'll put that in the gospel of Luke. It all is there to make a point about the authority of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has authority over everything. The clear theme here is Jesus' authority. Here is one whose word carried authority over disease, over nature, over demonic activity and spirits. He has authority over human heart. He has authority over sin. In every realm where evil reigns, a mightier authority has come to intervene. And as, as he says, as, as it is written, he came to set those captives free. You see, his authority resided in who he was. It was not the authority of the scribes or the Pharisees or the teachers of that day, which lay in citing Scripture. By the way, that's what I do. <laughs> I just tell you what I read about in Scripture. There's no authority that I possess. The authority is found right here in Scripture. And Jesus doesn't need to quote and, uh, and refer to other teachers, right? I mean, rabbis love to quote other rabbis. But Jesus would just say, well, all those things that have been said are about me. The authority that Jesus possessed was an authority inherent in who he was. It was a message with authority, and the authority came straight from God, as you, you saw the heavens open, you, and God say, this is my son in whom I love and am well pleased. My friends, while I appreciate our American form of government, I love that I live in the U.S., and I love that I am a U.S. citizen. There's a lot to celebrate when we think about our nation compared to others. Democracy and our Bill of Rights means that we can challenge anyone. Yeah. And in some ways, I love that. And the president, to the senators, and the representatives, I mean, we can question anyone. We have that kind of power. But we live in that kind of country where that kind of authority we have in, in choosing and electing officials, right? We have that kind of authority. So much so, I think the, the, the you know, what our country inadvertently teaches us is that, again, we have this authority, again, we have our rights, and we don't need to submit to anyone, Right? There is a downside to our freedom. There's a downside to our democracy. It fosters this kind of a concept of, of submission to authority that is quite, the different, uh, quite different than the one that we find in Scripture. Yes, there needs to be a healthy balance of what it means to submit to authority. We can all agree with the crowd that Jesus spoke with authority and power. 
But the real question as we look at passages like this is, will we, will hearers of the word and, and readers of the word, those in this context, and those who claim to be followers of Jesus, submit to the authority of God's word? Why should we submit? Let me give you three very simple points. One, I think we should submit because of our desperate, needy condition. We should submit to Jesus because of our desperate, needy condition. Again, if these stories tell us anything, these were folks in desperate situations And you'll see more desperate ones follow in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But because we see the desperateness of our condition, we know that what we're like under the dominion of the evil one, we know how broken and wounded we are by the effects of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We know that there is some desperateness when we see Peter's mother-in-law sick with such a high fever that, again, Luke includes this story, and perhaps she was sick, maybe even to the point of death. There's a long line of sick people lined up at Peter's door that evening and see ourselves spiritually. The human race is under the curse of the fall, captives of Satan's dominion of darkness, headed for spiritual judgment and And a second death, in light of the great need, we should cast ourselves at the mercy and submit to Jesus as Lord because He is our only hope. He is the only way. And if these stories tell us anything, it tells us how desperately we need Him. It tells us of our desperate condition we find ourselves. That apart from Jesus, there's no way There's no hope. There's no life. And so we should. We should submit to Jesus because he is unlike any other. Right? When you see this, again, when we think about submission, again, we are often led to stories, right? Again, we hear that word submission, and all we can think about are abusive people in our life or abusive folks who we just can't submit to. But you see, Jesus is different. Our Heavenly Father is different. We should submit to Jesus because of His great compassion and care. My friends, we have a good, good Father. Jesus could have quieted the crowd and then prayed in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit. Hey, everyone is healed. Go back home. But He doesn't. He touches every single person who comes in through that door. I mean, we see this in the scriptures. When we see, read these stories about Jesus, yes, Jesus demonstrates so much power, right? It's, it's meekness, we call it, again. it's power under control. And Jesus has all this power, and he could, at, uh, at, at a word, heal someone who is a, a, a far distance off. He does so. He can turn five loaves of bread and two fish and multiply it and and feed the masses. 
He can quiet the waves and the storms at a, at a word. At a word. I mean, he has and possesses that kind of, of authority. And yet he spends, again, the, the text tells us that he spends time because of his compassion and care. You know, we'll get to it uh, later on, I think in I think January, January or February, but we'll get to the story of Lazarus. Remember the story of Lazarus? And it's the shortest uh, verse in the English Bible. Uh, it's, you may know, uh, Jesus wept. Anyone ask you to like, memorize scripture? Like, that's the one to memorize? Jesus wept. Jesus cried. And I used to always think when I, when I read that, uh, here is the, the humanity of Jesus, right? I mean, you look at this, uh, this picture of Jesus crying when his friend Lazarus dies. And the text tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus cried. I used to always think the, the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. But I'm led to believe the more and more I read that, that text and I read others like it in the book of Luke, I'm led to the fact that it's the the divinity of Jesus. The deep compassion. And, you know, you think through, and again, I know I have on many occasions looked at God as sterile or hard or far away or... Scriptures like this remind me that uh, he cares for and he shows compassion and he loves and he is not far off. He hears the desperate cries of his people and he always responds. There's a section where Jesus looks at the crowds and it says he had compassion for them. And it's this Greek word that means uh, the spilling of the guts. I mean, it hits him so hard that it's, it's the guts, right? It's, it's affecting him where he's led to compassion. And it says he was led to compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looked on the crowds, and again, so often in Scripture, I mean, you read through the, through the pages of the Bible, and you will find no less than, right? Multiple times you find these instances of of God caring for the widow and God caring for the, the orphan, God caring for the least of these, God caring for the poor, that God worries about the prisoner, that God worries about the sick. And Luke is one of those examples, one of those places where, again, Jesus opens up the scrolls and he proclaims this year of jubilee when, when captives will be set free, when the hurting will hurt no more, when the blind will see, where the poor will be forgiven of their debts. And all throughout Scripture, again, here is the compassion of God, the care of God. And certainly we see that. And again, it's not we submit because he's in control or he has this authority of, over us and he demands it from us. That is not the kind of God we have. And the scriptures tell us that, again, 
He has compassion on the least of these. He sees our needy condition, and he shows great compassion anyway. <laughs> 